Well, let's open our Bibles to Matthew 23 this morning. Back in a pretty heavy passage, very heavy passage, in the Gospel of Matthew, which is a massive book we've been in for probably three years, um, maybe a little bit longer. It's been the long book um, from 2020 to 2023. There's been a lot that's happened in those years, um, weird and wild things that have happened, but something that has been steady through this time is we've been in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in chapter 23, and the Lord has us here for a particular reason that we kind of find out for our own lives as we unfold it today at this hour, and we're in the middle of Jesus' sermon, his monologue in his Passion Week days. He's Wednesday night, Thursday going into when he's going to be incarcerated and taken to the cross. He's giving some final words now, not dialogue, but monologue, which are woes, and in particular, woes to the scribes and Pharisees. The word woe is a judgment term. It's a term that speaks to um, both stopping uh, a call to woe to stop a sin and also a woe in terms of a judgment or a, a final adjudication on those who are reprobate, who will not hear, who will not turn to Christ, who are becoming hardened under this woe judgment. So there's some grace to the woe in terms of staving off um, sin and keeping people from going to that point. And then there is a judgment given that's very sober in terms of people at the point of no return. They won't turn back. Thinking of Christ giving woe judgments might not be the usual picture of Christ that people paint uh, in our world or society. Perhaps even God is seen as passive or just kind of muted out there in you know, sort of space somewhere where people don't think about him caring about what's going on at all here. God in Christ is the vision and picture of God's anger and wrath against what's happening all the time. And we need to think about God in a balanced way. God is good. God is gracious. God is loving. God is merciful. He desires for all men to be saved. He's drawing people to himself. And yet at the same time, he is not ignoring sin. He's angry at sin. In Psalm, 11 verse, Psalm 7, verse 11, it says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Every day he hates sin. Not seeing God in this way, along with his grace and love, is to sell God short in terms of who he is and how he is revealed to us. In a Jonathan Edwards sermon, Jonathan Edwards, who talked about sinners in the hands of an angry God, describes God in a way where he would send someone to hell for one single sin. One single sin earns someone in eternity in hell. Think about the manifold millions of sins that are cast against God from earth up to heaven and what that compounds in terms of judgment and in this case, indignation. These woe judgments are provocations in Christ's heart. He's provoked to say these things against sin. God's not passive. Think of the things that the Lord says he hates out of Proverbs six sixteen through 19. These are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, which is pride, 
a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. Here it is again, a false witness lying who breathes out lies and the one who sows discord among brothers. Bible lists work from uh, sort of in reverse order to what we typically think. Usually you think the first thing is the worst, but the last thing in a Bible list is what is kind of the compounding worst thing that's being brought up. In this case, a false witness breathing out lies and someone who's divisive in a community. It's what the Lord hates. If we were to categorize or personify a liar, what would that be? It would be someone who we would call this. They are a hypocrite, a play actor, someone who is not who they say that they are. And we've been talking about how Christ through chapter 23 is calling out hypocrites. This is what he is giving a woe judgment against the pride of the Pharisees, the charlatans, the scribes who are falling prey to this externalism, this external facade where they are self-deluded, self-deceived, believing they are fine and portraying a self-righteousness that is condemning them and other people. In four places, they're called blind, four times in a row, like blind guides, blind fools. They're the blind leading the blind, as Jesus said in the other place, where you're leading them down into a pit. This is what Jesus really gets angry at. He really does not want blind people who are filled with self-righteousness, who are hypocrites, to make hypocritical disciples. Look at verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, a single disciple, a convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. This is the compounding nature of false leadership under the guise of spirituality, under the guise, under the umbrella of you're safe under God if you follow me, and then they're leading people to hell. This is what Jesus is crying out against before he leaves this earth. The duplicity of the hypocrite is what I'm really bringing up this morning. Hypocrite is used 18 times in the New Testament, seven times here in chapter 23. Seven of those times are compact in this rolling thunder of Christ's wrath. Seven woes. And what I'm doing is I'm making outline points that aren't each woe, but are themes that Jesus pronounced woe judgment under. And I'm calling them provocations. These are provocations. The first one we talked about was woe to the pragmatist, verses 13 through 15, just by way of review. These are the hypocrites. Look at verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. What a phrase. You're shutting the door. Woe to you, you play-acting, duplicitous hypocrite. They want to go to heaven, and you're slamming the door in their face. That's pragmatic. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. And then verse 15, we already read. Again, hypocritical action. They're, they're, They're trying to, like, force conversions, and they're condemning these converts. And then secondly, we learned woe to the blind. That was the second provocation. 
those who are blind, they're lying to themselves and they're lying to God. And we talked all about verses 16 through 22, where these people are swearing by relics in the temple. They're, they're idolizing things externally within temple worship and making oaths and promises that they never intended to keep. They're lying to themselves. They're saying, I'm making this full commitment to you, God. And they're condemning themselves in doing so. It's a blindness. That kind of behavior happens all the time in church, by the way. People make all kinds of promises to God that are half-truths. They're not ones who are following Jesus' command to let your yes be yes and your no be no. Salvation is filled with integrity because you're saved by God, not by your own half-commitment. God is the one who saves you, and you are wholly saved Jesus is counteracting this religious, like do-gooding, this religious sort of oath-making or, you know, where you're condemning yourselves through false promises. Well, finally, let's get to the third woe theme, and that's hypocrites. The word hypocrite is splayed through this chapter, but I'm just dialing in in verses 23 to 28, highlighting that one idea. Jesus says in verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Verse 24, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Let's stop there. Scribes, Pharisees. They're called hypocrites, and we've already, I've been touching on this already, play actors. They're those who in the Greco-Roman play acting culture had the masks. You see those white masks that, you know, the smiling face, the sad face or whatever. That's the idea of the hypocrite. It's the externalist. It's portraying that you're one way when you're really not. It's the smiling, sort of toothy grinned person on Sunday morning that really is all about himself, all about herself, all in to what is not of God, portraying the opposite. We're to avoid this kind of behavior, and these behaviors I've outlined in subpoints. The first is inverted priorities. That's verses 23 and 24. It's where you're trying to, well, the Pharisee here is pictured as tithing, giving 10% of your property to God, in a way where you feel safe, you feel secure in your own self-righteousness to the ignoring of the weightier things of the law, which are helping other people who are hurting, caring about hurting people, reaching out to people who cannot help themselves. You give, and we're supposed to, even in the old covenant community, the tithe of 10% was clearly laid out, Leviticus 27.30. It says, every tithe of the land, whether of the sea, seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. It's the Lord's. The way that you give is you understand God owns everything anyway. And so a symbol or representation of giving under the Old Testament system was to give a tithe, which is literally the word for tenth. You were to give a tenth of your spices, a tenth of your yield from the crops of the land. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They had designated the giving to mint, dill, and cumin, these particular spices, I think, because they could count them out in specificity. Now, that's not what the law is saying to do, 
but they would take the principle of the law and then tighten it up with precision action so that they could sort of show off how much they were giving. You know, here's one seed, here's two, here's another spice, here's another one. And you're just parading your giving in front of people as a way to pad yourself in self-righteousness when you're supposed to be doing that in secret before the Lord. They were corrupting the point of tithing by trying to ramp up precision in a way that was a cover for their own self-righteousness. Instead of taking care of the weightier matters, what's the weightier matters? It's loving your neighbor as yourself. It's not that you weren't to give, but you're not to give in a way that then shuts off your heart from loving other people. Think about it. If you do something in self-righteousness that then gives you a pass on loving the hurting person, that is... Despicable to God. It's what he hates. It is a religious charade that provokes the Lord. Justice, where people need to be made whole. People need to be helped. Mercy, it's where your heart is soft to people. And then faithfulness. It means that it's not just a one-off. It's an ongoing heart for hurting people. You don't want to be giving at the expense of these things. And that's exactly what Jesus was saying they were doing. And he made a bit of a mocking um, sort of phrase against this where in verse 24 he says, You blind guides, you're leading people astray in this, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. What does that mean? Straining out, straining out a gnat is the practice of taking your goblet um, where you, you, or your cup and you want it to be filled with wine. And then you would cover that with, with cloth. You would, you would pull cloth very taut over the you know, opening of your glass. You'd pour the wine through and that would strain out any impurity of the wine going into your cup. That's how they did it. And what they were doing by... This action was they were straining out the gnat. The gnat was the smallest, most microscopic version of an unclean animal or organism that they would ingest. And so they're going, look, this is how pure we are. Our wine is perfectly pure. Our giving is precise and our wine is pure. That's what's representative in their own hearts as purity with the law. We will not even drink a gnat. We will not have a gnat be ingested. And Jesus flips the metaphor in his phrase. He says, no, you're not straining out the smallest animal in self-righteousness. What you are doing is it's as if you're swallowing a camel. You're chugging a camel, which is the largest unclean animal according to the law. So he just flips it. You're drinking a camel. I'd like to be able to make a joke about that. I just can't do it. I, there's nothing coming. They thought they were the cleanest and the purest with their wine, and really they were the filthiest, and they were just out of control. Well, that's the first characteristic you don't want in your life, inverted priorities. The second is to reverse cleanliness. To reverse cleanliness. This is hypocrisy that's operating in reverse. Um, to steal a phrase from the late Tim Keller, it's working outside in rather than inside out. You want to work inside out. You want to work on your heart first and let the actions take care of themselves. People do that in reverse. Oh, you know, 
and I used to do this, I'd sit under the Word of God and start to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit and think about how, many, how much time I haven't been spending with the Lord, and I would dedicate, okay, all right, now I'm going to stack up some quiet times, man. I'm going to, like, drop and give God 20, spiritually speaking. Right now, I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to really get in the prayer closet big time. I'm going to open that devotional that I haven't cracked open yet, and then I'm going to feel right with God. That's working the outside in rather than saying, Lord, help me. Lord, I want to know you. Lord, let me confess some sin to you right now. Let me, let me work on my heart in a humble and contrite way. Now, that can lead to disciplines that you do spiritually, but you don't want to work discipline to heart. You want to work heart to discipline. Well, look at the illustration here that Jesus gives. Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside, that the outside also may be clean. Simple illustration. Now I'm working the exposition first, and then we're going to talk through some more applications, but let me just build this into a modern analogy. Imagine you're at the Kratz home. And hey, you know, we want to have you and we, we like to have crowds over of people sometimes, especially teenagers usually, but we, you know, we're doing that. We're pulling cups out of the dishwasher. Let's say the dishes, you know, we thought they were run, but they really weren't run. And, and you're, you're putting cups on the table and on the outside of the cup, it looks pretty good. It looks clean. It's good. You're sitting there. You're ready to drink something. The lemonade or whatever is getting ready to be poured and you look in and there's just that scummy crud on the inside, that kind of gristly looking, you know, coffee grounds and some green, you know, calcified just junk that's in there, right? Maybe it was art. Maybe it ran through the dishwasher, but there was no soap put in or liquid or, or just wasn't a full cycle. And it's, it's sterile, you know, it's sterile crud that you could, you could survive. But how... Re- repulsive is that, right? It's revolting. I wanted to build that analogy. Or the plate, you know, the outside of the plate, it looks all clean. You turn it over to put your food on and, oh, there's that rock hard something, you know, that you just don't want to work through. And um, that's what Jesus is pointing out. He's saying, you need to deal with what's inside of you rather than cleaning the outside, making yourself look good in how you look, how you talk, how you act. That's not what Jesus is concerned with. He's concerned with the inside of your heart. What's the scummy crud on the inside of your heart? Verse 25, greed and self-indulgence. But inside, you see that at the end of verse 25, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Full of it. Verse 26, you blind Pharisee. Here's the simple answer. Clean the inside of the cup and the plate. Here's the grace in the middle of the woe. Clean the inside. That the outside may be clean. This is the cause and effect of the Christian life. Trust in the gospel. Think through the gospel. Think through where you need to repent. Think, cast your cares upon the Lord. Confess your sins openly to the Lord. Confess your sins horizontally to safe places and relationships in the body of Christ and talk to people and, and begin to, to sense the Lord's transforming work in your life. Whenever I try to work outside in, I'm always in trouble. I'm always in trouble at home. I'm in trouble with my kids. It's not clicking. It's not going, well, okay, honey, I'll do it. I promise. I'll I'll get there from here. I'll change this. That kind of reform is fleeting. It, it, It begins in the heart. So that's reverse 
cleanliness. You know, there was a family that we knew in Little Rock, Arkansas. We were there for 11 years. I was an associate pastor, and we had moved into moved on to a street where houses were being built, and we were able to get into one of those. And several different families came to the street at the same time, so we became friends with a lot of them. And one of the families that moved across the street into a home was a fellow pastor and wife. Um, they were, um, you know, a fun group and and um, a big family, and we, we kind of shared, you know, together and kids bike riding and stuff. And, and you know, it was kind of a, a modest street. I mean, it was new homes, but it was a, you know, a modest street. But one thing I noticed about this family, um, we're similar aged, is that he bought, he was, he was a car aficionado. Now, don't hear me wrong on this. I like new stuff. I like nice things. That's great. But it just seemed odd because it was almost like he was running a dealership of Mercedes and BMWs and they would just show up in a new one and trade in another one. It's like, okay, it's none of my business, but okay. You know, and then, then, but then one day trucks begin to show up and furniture was just being loaded in, offloaded and loaded in to this house. Stuff, stuff was coming out, stuff was going in. And I, I talked to him finally. You know, I mean, it was funny. They loved Judy, especially because the, the pastor was from Texas and he loved animals and Judy loves animals. One time there was a bird that was in the house that flew in and he was down in Texas um, visiting family or something down there. And he called back, his wife called in a panic. Oh, there's a bird in the house. We can't get it out. And, and the guy was like, uh, you know, go across the street, get Judy, not Jeff. Get Judy, and she'll get the bird out. And so, I mean, we were a close family. All that to say, she got the bird out. When she, when she got the bird out of the house, by the way, the kid looked up and went, Praise Jesus! We're saved! So, um, anyway, all that to say, I, I, I just asked the question. I said, why are the, you know, renting trucks here? And, and the, the lady said, well, you know... Um, we, we, we're renting new furniture. We like a good presentation in our home. And I, I just thought, you know, it, it's a little bit of a, a question where, where you, you, it's one thing to earn what you have and sort of, you know, fill out over time what you have. It's another thing to sort of ready make an appearance that shows maybe what you can't afford. And that was the picture that was left in my mind. And I thought, that's a picture of what we're looking at here with false spirituality. There's a lot of things that you can kind of build up on the outside as an appearance where it's really empty inside. And if you live by that external facade, which is our next characteristic here, it will drain the life out of you spiritually. And it will drain other people as well. They will follow you down this path and they will feel the same drain It's an illustration that is given here in verse 27 of this with empty tombs or whitewashed tombs, I should say. Look at verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Whitewashed tombs. You need to understand the idea of washing a tomb in view of the Old Testament law. Uh, The Old Testament law here was saying that if you touched a tomb, you would be suspended from the fellowship of the body um, for seven days. 
If you touched a dead person or, or the bones, uh, remains of a dead person on, on the battlefield or something like that, you would be, you'd be in quarantine. You're out. Remember what that was like? It's like, oh, I tested positive. Oh, what do I do? You know, and you're stuck. And that was to be avoided. Numbers 19, 16, whoever in the open field touches someone who was killed with a sword or who died naturally or touches a human bone or a grave shall be unclean seven days. Uh, Jesus indicted the Pharisees in a different way, saying that they were like unmarked graves. Uh, Luke eleven forty four. woe to you. You're like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. It's like walking through a graveyard. Oh, I'm contaminated. Oh, I... That brush was covering that tomb, and I'm I'm in no man's land. So now I'm out. I'm I you know I'm I'm separated away, out of fellowship. I'm under discipline for seven days. So what they did to avoid that is they why they would scrub the tomb, <laughs> they would scrub the sepulcher, or scrub the the um, mausoleum, you know the the sort of housed um, caskets, and and so that you wouldn't touch them. They were like it was like backlit. It was. It was to be seen and visible so you wouldn't be contaminated in violation of the word. Think of like in World War II where you have battlefields where landmines had markers up. That, that was to be avoided. And so Jesus here is not complimenting the Pharisees for whitewashing these things. He's actually condemning them, saying this kind of externalism pictures you. You're that whitewashed tomb. For you are whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful. A lot of times they would dress them in, they would ornament them. But within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. I think it's important to understand that the picture of the Pharisee is that they are this mausoleum or as if they are inside of the mausoleum, like inside of a sarcophagus, and you're, you're there with dead men's bones around you, and you're, you're trapped, you're entombed with your own self-righteousness. Think of uh, the scene um, depicted by Edgar Allan Poe where someone is buried alive, and they're in the casket, and they're beating, you know, they're sort of trying to knock their way out, and they're looking next to them, and their own dead men's bones are around them, and they're corrosive and corrupting them inside that self-entombed existence. This is what Jesus is exposing. He's saying this is a facade of fools where you think that you're okay, but you are killing yourself spiritually. You're dead and you're self-perpetuating death in your life. Ephesians 2, 1 says you're born this way, dead in your trespasses and sins. James 1, 13 says that when you're tempted, don't say it's God who is tempting you. God's not the one that tempts you and entices you, but you tempt and entice yourself. And if you stay unsaved in this self-perpetuating temptation, then it says when the sin is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And the sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. You're, you're birthing death in your life where you're going to find out one day that you died and went to eternal hell. This is what Jesus is exposing. It's what he's saying you have to avoid at all costs. It's a self-contamination. Where outwardly you appear righteous, verse 28, to others, they'll buy it. But within, full of, here's the word, hypocrisy and lawlessness. Lawlessness just means you're a rebel. Anytime you think of lawlessness, it means you don't care. I don't care. I don't care about the law. I don't care that God wrote it. I don't care that I'm in violation of it. I don't care that I'm heaping up sins 
um, against myself, as I sin against God, I don't care. You're checked out. That's what it means to be entombed in your own death state. That's what Jesus is calling out. Let's, let's apply this for a little while. These are some thoughts I wrote down when I was in the Lowe's parking lot earlier this week. Had my phone. I just wrote this down. I thought, you know, I don't want to forget this. So I, here we go. It's on hypocrisy. The Bible is filled with a theme of hypocrisy. Ultimately, Jesus is the, the one who comes with full integrity and dies to save us from our duplicity, save us from this entombed state. He's the one that breaks us out of the sarcophagus. He breaks us out of the tomb, out of the crypt, and we are made alive. He brings our death to life. But just to think about some of the characters of hypocrisy to set the stage, Satan himself, the angel of light, right? He's Lucifer. He's light. And with his I wills and his pride, he goes against God. He's a facade. He's the snake, the serpent in the garden who tempts Eve. And he's like, I'm, like he's a spokesperson for God. And he's interpreting the Bible and twisting the scripture with what, what had been commanded of Eve and tempting her. And then they fall to temptation. And then in their sin, they see their sin for the first time and they hide themselves in the foliage and cover themselves, which is a act of hypocrisy. And then they have a baby and it's Cain and Abel. But you have Cain who is uh, giving his offering, Abel who gave his offering, which is a righteous one. Cain gives one that's hip- hypocritical. It's a hypocritical act. Then you have, you know, the children of Israel. You have the, the covenant of Abraham. I, I maybe just mentioned Abraham was calling Sarah to, to lie, to tell like a half-truth. That's a version of hypocrisy to save their lives. But then you have um, where the children of Israel are under Pharaoh, and you have, you have the miracles of God, and you have the magicians that are the hypocrites that are giving fake miracles. Then you have every idol that's ever raised up. Even the golden calf in the wilderness is a, is a version of what people think God should be, but that's a version of hypocritical worship. It's hypocrisy. Every false prophet that stood up for God, um, they, they're false teachers, false prophets. All the ones that were put down on Mount Carmel, all those false Baal worshipers are hypocrites. Judas Iscariot in the New Testament, one of the 12, a hypocrite, better that he had not been born. He was the ultimate picture of Matthew 7. He prophesied in Jesus' name. He cast out demons. He performed miracles. He preached. He did all these things. And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. You don't want to be in that situation in heaven one day, standing before God, being declared false as a hypocrite. You have the wheat and you have the tares. You have people inside church who look like Christians, who look like the real thing, who still need Jesus. They still need to be called out and helped. You need to have Bible studies together. You need to find out who you are and, and confess to each other. Say, I don't know that I know Jesus yet and pray together and Get to know Jesus and help each other. If you already know Jesus, help the other person out. You have people in the church who aren't real 
Christians yet. You have Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit. We talked about that last week. They were hypocrites. You have the so-called brother of 1 Corinthians 5 who he was in sin and at such a level that he had to be delivered outside of the church and exposed in that way so that he would come to the end of himself and prodigal and come back in the last day to Christ. False apostles that accused Paul of being false when they were the ones that were false. You have Demas who left Paul at the end of his ministry and life for this present world. You have Diotrephes who basically shut down missions in the early church, at least in the early churches of Asia Minor where John is calling him out saying, this man is full of himself. He believes he's the big boss at the church. He's shutting down the missionaries. He's shutting down those who want to contribute to missions, kicking them out of the church. He was a hypocrite. There's false teachers, 2 Peter, Jude talks about them, 1 Timothy chapter 4, false spirits, false teachings, doctrines of demons. Then in the book of Revelation, you have a third of the angels that are shown to have been swept away earlier by the dragon, which is Satan, the third of the stars. They're all hypocritical angels. You have the Antichrist, which is the opposite of Christ, which is the hypocrite. You have Mystery Babylon, which is hypocrisy, and then hell is filled with people who thought that they were safe when they really weren't. They were self-deceived hypocrites. This is what provokes Jesus to anger. So what do we do about this practically? Well, first of all, you need to know why it makes Jesus angry so that we are warned against doing these things. A hypocrite has an appearance of godliness. They garner the trust of people. And then they make disciples of hypocrisy. They build a platform from a works-based facade. If you do this, if you're faithful enough, if you say these things, if you know enough, then you're in when you're really not. And ultimately, they build a false religion that's a facade that causes people to die spiritually with them. It's like a death camp. So how do you fight against And kill this sin. You have to work from the inside out. You have to start with true godliness. Godliness comes from a transformed heart. It always does. Godliness begins with God. Not you. Salvation is saying I can't save myself. Godliness and growing in that is remembering that you didn't save you. And God is the one who is transforming you. Yes we obey. But we obey out of a soft submissive, humble reliance on the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. Build trust with others through faithfulness, not through some work-based platform. And make disciples of the gospel and of Christ. So a disciple is a learner. So if you're going to have followers, don't be the blind leading the blind. Be the seeing. Be the ones who know Christ, who've seen Christ, who can show people Christ from the scripture, which comes from learning of Christ Going into Bible study, don't just read your Bible to survive. Study your Bible to make disciples. The greatest way to grow is to make disciples. I'm convinced of that. My Christian life and my Christian experience so far in my journey, the times that I grow the most is when I'm learning the Bible to give the Bible to somebody else. Always. If I just learn to survive, it, it really, really is an exhausting existence spiritually. Oh, I just just made it. You know, okay, I'm back down again. I'm climbing up the ladder. That's a form of, that can turn into self-righteous, works-righteous work that is depleting. Rather than saying, 
I'm going to roger up and I'm going to learn the Bible so I can give bread and milk to other people. And that's just what Jesus did. He was in touch with God as he was on mission. And that's how we live the Christian life. And that blows hypocrisy away. I mean, I never studied before. I, I mean, I just sort of floated through high school. The first time I was really studying was when I was given an opportunity to preach. And it was my youth pastor said, hey, we'll give you the Wednesday evening, you know, sort of youth pulpit. And you got to study and roger up and bring the word. And I sat down. It was First Thessalonians chapter 4 about the will of God. What is the will of God? And I sat down on my den floor and opened up the single Bible commentary I had in my Bible. And my mom walked by and said, you're studying? What are you doing? And I was digging and I was dialed in. And I wasn't going to leave that moment until I had a word from God. And that's when I began to study. I taught myself how to study from doing that. And it was all from the appetite to give the word to someone else. That's how you grow. Live a grace-driven life defined by scripture. And pray that the Holy Spirit is the one that makes conversions. Not you. Not some curriculum. Not some cult group. Not some, you know, sort of external faithfulness. It's giving the word of God, setting the table, and trusting that God will save people. You pray for that. So what are some of the modern masks that you should be warned of? Hypocritical mask number one, intellectualism. People who know a lot and, and just know stuff to fill up their own heads with knowledge. That kind of pride is often hypocrisy. Financial security, people who have a lot, who trust in that, who say, look, obviously God's with me because look at my bank account. That's can be a hypocritical self-confidence. Having a high self-esteem can be hypocrisy. I mean, it doesn't have to be these things. You can be smart. You can be financially secure. You can have self-confidence. But these things can turn idolatrous in a second. Having good friends can be a false sense of hypocrisy. I'm good because I have good godly friends. It's a false version of spirituality. You can be justice-driven. You can be those who are doing good in the world, and that can be hypocritical because you can be doing so much good on the outside and be dead on the inside. You've got to start from the inside and work outside. You can be ecumenical, hold hands with everybody and everything without any kind of doctrinal precision, and that can be hypocritical egalitarian. You can be this person where the Bible doesn't mean anything in terms of defining roles and responsibilities in life and understanding. Hypocrisy is subtle. The worst version of hypocrisy, I'm convinced from what I read in Matthew 23, is religious hypocrisy. This is what Jesus hates. So what do we do? You make a trade. Someone lost in hypocrisy needs to trade in their mask of religion for a relationship with Jesus. I know it's cliche to say it's not about a religion, it's a relationship, but that's actually a pretty powerful phrase if you let it sink in. Jesus says, depart from me for I never knew you. The last thing we want to hear is that we want to be Paul in Philippians 3, where this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward for the prize that lies ahead, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering and the power of his resurrection. That's what it means to be a Christian. We know him. And none of us are perfect. We're all a little bit hypocritical all the time because we're sinners. But baseline, we know Christ. And that's sort of what cuts through the doom of hypocrisy.